Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through the next 30, 35 minutes as we interview Ray Day, CCO of IBM. Ray, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, not as exuberant as you. I have a question for you. Yeah. What is it that you do for lunch? before these podcasts that causes you to be so exuberant. It's very it's, impressive. It's usually hard liquor, right? You know? Whatever works, whatever works my friend. So, whatever yeah. works. Um, it still sounds weird saying CCO of IBM, to be honest, Ray. I mean, obviously. It's nearly two years. What, how many years at Ford? 28 years at Ford yeah. and nearly two at yeah. IBM. Yes, so we're looking forward to finding out all about that. Good stuff. Absolutely. And we got the man, the myth, the legend, Frank Washkirk, News Director of PR Week. How you doing, Frank? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Um, are the Mets going to make the wild card? Probably not, <laughs> no. but thank you for your support. Well, I went to see too. your club last night, and it was, uh, is it a club, baseball club? Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. You could say that. I really enjoyed it, actually. It was, uh, Mets Stadium is uh, a great place to hang out. It's and, the best uh, baseball stadium in New York, hands down. Well, yeah, I mean, there, I know a few PR people who would um, have an <laughs> issue with you on that. Andy Polanski, maybe Bill Heyman, various others. But actually, I think I agree with you. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into the uh, topical subjects with Frank Johnson and Johnson, the opioid uh, court hearing. Popeyes to get free chicken sandwich to find their new CMO. I don't know what that's all about, but we will find out. And Arby's and Chobani marketers are heading up to the C-suite. Billions are flowing into the PR tech market, so we'll find out a bit more about that. Blue Focus, big Chinese holding company, has spun off its international agencies. And some sad news about Lord Tim Bell, who passed away at the weekend. We will uh, reflect on his life. But um, first, we're going to talk to you, Ray. Yeah, we mentioned that briefly. You've been at IBM two, year, two years now. That's, Nearly that's, two years. That's time flies. Um, and um, tell us about what you've done in that time. What was the task? Obviously, you had a long storied career at Ford in the auto sector. Come to join a different sector, although maybe you'll say it's part of two sides of the same coin. It's all technology these days. Absolutely. Tell us all about it. Everyone is a tech company these Absolutely, days, so there's yeah. a lot of commonality overall. But yeah, it's nearly two years at IBM, a great iconic company. Everyone knows it, great reputation. And what we've been doing within the IBM communications and citizenship team is really just pulling everyone together. And I believe that what we do as a profession can really be boiled down to two things. We create stories and we tell them in that order. And so we've been really, really spending a lot of our time on what is the IBM story and how best to tell some areas where we're really differentiating the market, such as in hybrid cloud and AI. And then we're really looking at new ways to tell our story. And one of the, the key drivers for me historically and certainly now at IBM is not to focus just on this week or this month or this quarter, but what's the future going to be like? And I told the team that if I'm doing my job right, I'll spend 90% 90 90 of my time on what the world's going to be like three to five years from now. 
rather than this week and this month. So is really that, future focused. Is that the, the sort of heart of the mission of IBM? Is, is that where you see it uh, at this moment? Well, IBM is a company that's 108 years old. And IBM, uh, coming from my past and looking like everyone asked me, what's the difference between what I was doing in auto and what I'm doing now with oh, IBM? Be my next I'm, sure, I'm sure it was. Damn, I've got to think of another one. You. Um, <laughs> and two great iconic companies in auto and industrial and moving to tech, all fascinating, and I still have a love affair with auto. What I, what I really am charged up about at IBM is it's a company that has constantly reinvented itself and really has made a mark on the world. So what we're working on today is much different from what we were working on just a year ago and what we certainly what we worked on five years ago. And, you know, for example, this week, we're one of the stories that we're telling is how IBM is underneath the U.S. Open and how we're using AI and cloud to help the coaches improve the performance of the team. And then we're, you know, you, you run the gamut of blockchain and all the work we're doing on blockchain for food safety, working with major companies like Nestle and Walmart and so many other retailers. Can you help us out with a definition of blockchain, just so, for ignoramus yeah, yeah. like so, me? So blockchain is a trusted network. Um, so think of, think of a ledger. Think of if you and I were doing a transaction, you'd keep a ledger you keep a checkbook, if you will, and I keep a checkbook, and there'd be a manual part to that process. And what blockchain does is use data and technology to make that seamless, eliminate the paperwork, but more importantly, make it trusted. So I'll give you an example, shipping. 30% of the time today in shipping is wasted on paperwork. So a ship comes into a port, and you've got the bill of lading, and it's a manual process, and we don't really know when that ship is going to come in. With blockchain, it eliminates all that paperwork so that you have the ship coming in seamlessly, the truck and the driver there goes to the merchant, and it's all trusted. It's all seamless. So trusted transactions and eliminating a lot of this manual ledger process. Got it. Okay, nice one. Um, tell us about IBM. We obviously remember Johnny Watter, sort of iconic PR professional marketer, often held up as the archetypal future of communications in that marketing and comms were together at IBM under John's reign, and he was uh, one of those uh, PR pros who actually took on marketing and, and covered both. It's different now, isn't it? You've kind of gone back and separated. Tell us how you've changed the structure and, and the thinking behind that in, in, in terms yeah, of absolutely. the new idea. Yeah, And uh, John and I, spoke this morning and we still keep in a really close touch and he has some really, really with Roger Bolton, some fascinating work coming out at the, the next page conference really on this yeah, whole thing. Yeah, you can read about that in PR week soon, hopefully. Uh, yes, indeed. He told me <laughs> that he was uh, giving you uh, the info, but really talking about the future of our profession and how it's changing. And John is really the one that split marketing from communications at IBM before I arrived. But what we're really doing from a communication standpoint is just going back to the fundamentals of communications. And one of the things we've been doing in the last nearly two years is just looking at our team, looking at how we're operating, making sure that we're standardized, that we're consistently telling a story, that we're consistently operating the same way. And those of you who know me well know I am huge on data and analytics. I believe that what we do 
it should be measured like every other part of the business. So we put in place a lot of data and analytics. And now with that great foundation in place, uh, including some changes we made to the team, building on the existing strong team that was there, uh, making some changes we made to the agency structure, we're now in a really fit model to then become more future focused as we go forward. And one of the big things you did and was have had a look at your agency support and obviously um, IBM was heavily associated with Ketchum and Tex 100 over the years and you did the review process in the fairly early part of um, your tenure and you've gone to a new arrangement. So tell us one about that process, tell us how you went about it, what was the thinking and then tell us what what you're looking for from your new agency partners. Yeah, absolutely. So when uh, I arrived at IBM and I met with the leadership team and I said, let's talk about the agencies. How is it working? And it was okay. There was no disparagement necessarily of anyone or anything. But what we had was a potpourri of agencies. And it had become kind of siloed. And we, we didn't have a lot of working together, certainly within the regions and clearly not within the world. So what we decided is, okay, let's take the radical decision. Don't indict or make anyone feel bad. We're just going to put the whole business out for RFP. And that's what we did. And it wasn't just, I didn't lead the process. I was a participant in the process with my leadership team. And we went out and said, here's what we need at IBM. And we said we wanted one anchor agency that could serve us worldwide and really be the consistency and the commonality and the standardization that I talk about. And then two, we needed some specialty needs. We needed some specialty needs from a storytelling standpoint and some from unique parts of the IBM business. And we went through a really quick process. I remember talking to the procurement uh, team and I said, I'd really like to get this all done in a month. And uh, that was pushing the envelope, but everyone worked together. We got it done in a month. And we ended up with our anchor agency with Weber Shanwick. And then we have a couple uh, agencies that we work with from a story standpoint, serving us on the financial side. And it's working well. And I like to talk about a blended team. My goal uh, throughout my entire career was when I do a town hall with the communications team, I want to be able to look out and participate and not really know and certainly not matter whether they're in-house, whether they're serving us from an agency standpoint. To me, it's all about everyone working together, bringing creativity, strategic thinking, and execution all to the same party and all have the same vision. Now, when you were at Ford, you were kind of tied into that WPP holding company model, mm -hmm. weren't you? Did you find it quite liberating, actually, that you could pretty much choose who you wanted, you know, within certain uh, parameters? But uh, And what's your sort of advice to the big holding companies? Because you've still ended up with a holding company agency, but just not... not not in the same way as you had at Ford. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a real fan of you establish partners and you build on a relationship. And you know, we call it PR and that R is strategic because we're in the relationship business. And I believe that is as important in the way we work with the agency partners as it is when we're working with the news media and other stakeholders. So whether it's in a big holding company or whether it's a kind of a collection of agencies that we put together that don't necessarily live in the same family, but they know how to work together. One of the key questions we asked in the RFP is, do you have the ability to work with a competitor agency or someone not in your family? And only those who said they could, and most everyone said they could, advance to the next levels. So for me, it's really about how does everyone work together and just constantly involving. And 
know, IBM, the watchword that I've learned is about reinvention. And what I know within the tech industry, but what I also more importantly know is in communications is where we are today is going to be markedly different three to five years from now. So the needs we have today from our skills standpoint, from the agency standpoint, from everything we're doing is going to change markedly and we have to constantly be reinventing. And that's what that partnership can do. And you just find people who can keep raising that game. And my key desire is, I just ask the question all the time, how is the world going to consume information three to five years from now? And then what do we do today, this year, to get there and place that bet? Yeah, and finally, um, you know, if you were at Ford now, you'd be, uh, you know, very engaged with the government in terms of stories. And every CCO has to have a plan in place for when issues like that come up. What's the biggest difference uh, between, I know we've already covered this a little bit, but with IBM and Ford, because they are different companies and Ford's, both iconic companies, but in different ways. Ford's a big manufacturer in the com in the country. There are all those issues about yeah. jobs and tariffs, and and that obviously in engages with IBM as well. But what's what's the biggest uh, yeah. difference business? Yeah, you know, firstly, I, the commonalities are there. Two iconic companies that people respect and adore, with great employee populations. So there's a massive employee communications need for both of these companies. The difference for me uh, now working in tech and working in IBM, and particularly IBM, it is such a diverse company. You know, everything, we're hardware, we're software, we're services, and we have 350,000 all professional employees. So the way we serve the world is much different from what I've seen in the past. And the other difference, of course, is B2C versus B2B. You know, when you have a B2C product and a way of communicating it, there's a, there's a playbook and there's a model for that. B2B, it's a little bit different. And when you have this diverse set of products and services and offerings and you're doing it in a B2B way, you have to learn how to storytell and engage in a slightly different way. But I would say there's more commonality than there are differences. Do you miss, miss the auto shows? Um, After 28 uh, <laughs> years? <laughs> you, uh, I'm going to be back at uh, the Frankfurt Show in a couple of weeks. Oh, our, Ginny, our CEO, is speaking at the Frankfurt Show. And she's speaking really on the divergence and really the coming together of auto and tech. And she was asked to be a keynote speaker. So I will get my fill in just a couple of weeks of being back at the Motor Show. Actually, that's interesting. That just talks, but just as Ford's at CES, IBM's at the Frankfurt Auto Show. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, talking of Ginny, she was involved in that purpose statement with the Business Roundtable last Monday. Talk to us about that whole push and how important is that statement? You know, some people were saying, great, this is about time. CEOs have, this is, have stood up and made that statement. Others are saying, well, what took you so long? You know, what took us through the, the attitude? Yeah, to that. well, from an IBM standpoint, purpose has been part of our DNA for decades, and really since the company's founding. And, you know, when I arrived at IBM, one of the things that really impressed me is on my desk, there was just one little book. And the little book, and that's all they wanted me to first see was the company's three values. And uh, the first was dedicated to our clients' success. The second is innovation that matters for the company and the world, which gets to purpose. And the second and the third was trust and personal responsibility in every relationship. So it's it's core to the values. And when you, you talk to an IBM or they embody those values, they take those values to heart. So purpose has been part of what we've done forever. And Ginny, she was one of the champions of this effort, working with Alex and with Jamie. And 
I think it's good to see the discussion and even the debate out there on this. But for me, when I look at the discussion that's out there, I think it's for some time been an and, not an or. And I think the, the debate right now is it shareholders or stakeholders. And for me, and at least for us at IBM, it's always been an and. And I think that's what we'll come to when this debate plays out, is that it has to be an and, particularly in this day and age. It does, but you do have a fiduciary duty to your shareholders, don't you? Absolutely, and that's why it's an and. You, you keep that duty to your shareholders, and you have a duty to your other stakeholders. Yes. That's a whole show, I think, on its own, but we will discuss that a lot more at our conference in Chicago in mid-October, uh, Purpose Principles, uh, PR Decoded. Ray? Thank you. Great to chat. Uh, let's bring in Frank. We'll just, let's skip through these, Frank. We've got a lot to get through. Uh, Johnson & Johnson has been in the news this week. They've got ongoing uh, issues around um, court cases, around talcum powder and opioids. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, a judge in Oklahoma ruled uh, against J&J this week in a case that said they were partially responsible for fueling the opioid epidemic in that state. Um, it set the, the judge set the award at $572 million that J&J would owe. Of course, they're appealing this. Um, but what's interesting about this is that the prosecutors, the state attorneys, had been uh, looking for $17 billion. So J&J stock actually went up after the ruling because it was so much less than it could have been. Uh, of course, there are other opioid-related cases around the country, and J&J is dealing with thousands of talc baby powder-related cases as well. Ray, are you, I'm, I'm sure you don't particularly want to comment on that specific case, but you must have been in that situation as a chief communications officer when your company is involved in big issues like that. How do you respond and how do you? what's the playbook, if you like? Yeah, and I have to commend uh, J&J and the comms team and the legal team for the way they're handling it. And uh, without a lot of emotion, they're really just presenting the facts. And they're talking about the fact that uh, they were compliant with all the laws, and that you know the case was there were three companies involved, and they ended up being the one that went to court after two settled. Um, but what what has really impressed me is, from a media standpoint, J and J has just gone out there and presented the facts. From a statement standpoint, they presented the facts. From an employee standpoint, they presented the facts. And for me, any time you get into one of these emotional and controversial situations. The facts, just presenting the facts, is the name of the game. Now, it's, it's obviously quite tense times when you're a communicator in those situations. Do you get a buzz out of that, or is it like, oh, my God, here we go again? Or do you actually, I know a lot of communicators kind of get a buzz out of being, you know, right in the thick of it. Yeah, for me, it's just a natural instinct. And what, what I really try to talk about with any of the teams I've led is that when you get into a crisis or an issues management situation, there's no playbook. There's no red binder you keep on the shelf. There are no uh, scenario planning that you do. You should prepare and you should activate and you should do drills and such. But what you really want to get to is anyone on the team being ready to be just catapulted in that situation and have the muscle memory and know what to do. And for me, you know, the first step is calm under pressure. The comms team, often within a company, is looked to as that calming force, bring everyone together, calm everyone down, and number one, what are the facts? And then how are we going to communicate those facts? But until we know those facts, there's no communication going forward. So to me, it's just innate and you do it. 
It's not something you want to do in perpetuity. You don't want to constantly do firefighting because that's not the fun part of our job. But you do absolutely have to know how to do that from a reputation standpoint. Yeah, for sure. Michael Sneed in the thick of it at the moment, uh, former guest on the podcast. Um, let's, we can't have a podcast without talking about fast food, uh, chicken, <laughs> burgers, whatever it is, or yoga. Is that fast food? I don't know. But uh, Frank, Popeye's. New CMO, and there's a chicken sandwich involved. What's going on? They're offering uh, candidates for the CMO position a free chicken sandwich, which, I mean, let's face it, is enough to lure anybody to a job. Um, so they're looking for a new CMO as they are uh, in the middle of this kind of social media craze over who has the best chicken sandwich. And there's a lot of banter between them and uh, K- KFC and uh, Chick-fil-A and Wendy's and Annika's. Yeah, yeah. It's it's and Popeyes it's, is winning. Is it? Popeyes okay. is winning because Wash they've, spoken. they've sold out of their chicken sandwich. Well, maybe they didn't make enough. Right? You know, I mean okay. Yeah, no. I've it's, seen uh, the lines. Yes. I've seen the lines. Indeed. Have you been in the lines, Frank? No, I haven't. Okay. But I've I've seen I've walked by them and okay. chuckled. Yeah, right. no, this is all this is all this is what social's all about these days. But it's interesting. And Arby's and Chibani, they're both their marketers have been elevated yes, to we very senior roles in the C suite. Two CMOs that were uh moving on up. Jim Taylor uh is gonna become president of Arby's. He was he's gonna hold on to his CMO duties for a little while but he replaces rob lynch and this is an interesting move too because he goes over to papa john's which of course has a a lot of difficulties with their stock down i think 13 percent from last year and the whole issue with part the of the same company and, yeah uh no that's a different company. right okay so he goes over to papa john's and um yeah he's going to try to turn the ship around there so okay. to speak but we also have peter mcginnis at chobani being moved up to the president role there yeah, uh, there's a couple of issues there, Ray, and we've talked about these on the podcast. One is about the changing role of the CMO. I mean, some companies are getting rid of them. J&J got rid of their CMO, and Michael Sneed took on more responsibilities. So did McDonald's. So did Uber. So did Lyft. Um, and then there's the point about being elevated into the C-suite, which you don't often see a CCO actually get elevated into a business role. Um, I'm thinking of Stacey Tank yeah, at Home yeah. Depot. Um, Pete Marino at uh, Miller Coors, although he's retained his comms duties. What's your thoughts on those two issues, like the future of the CMO and, and why don't we get more CCOs elevated to the boardroom, if you like? Well, certainly CCOs should be candidates um, for business roles like that. And I don't know that a lot of CCOs have general management tracks from their career standpoint. But what I like to say when I'm on campus and talking to young people coming into our profession and they asked me, what, are the, what should I know? What should I know about going into this profession? And I said, if you can keep just two things, two requirements, two prerequisites to what we do in mind. First, you have to be a business leader. Your first priority is to be part of the business, to be able to sit at that business table, to understand the business strategy, and to provide solutions, and to be predictive, and to help the team. Your second obligation is to do communications. And you can't do communications if you don't understand the business, if you're not close to the business. So that doesn't surprise me that some very skilled CCOs who have taken that to heart and really become adept at the business acumen, that then they move up into general management. Yeah. The other part about marketers actually dovetails into this next story a little bit, Frank. Billions flowing into the PR technology M&A market. Yes. 
that is changing communications just as it's changed marketing. So it's a report from Burton Taylor, and it basically gets into how much money is being spent in this sort of platforms, products, and tools for PR people space. So um, one interesting part of it is Decision, for instance, has spent more than two billion dollars over the past couple of years on on merge on acquisitions. Um, and that includes, you know, $2 billion in cash from the amount of money they're spending buying other companies. So it's an interesting study on how much money is flowing into this space and, and you know, where it's coming from. Yeah, there's a couple of implications here too, Ray, in that one, and you're on both sides of it at IBM, one, as a professional CCO, I guess you're using a lot more technology than maybe when you came into the into the profession and two IBM is providing a lot of that technology Absolutely. so yeah what's your take on that well kind of two points one is just from a skills standpoint I think that all of us if all the companies are becoming tech companies from a skill set standpoint we all need to become more technically inclined and I don't mean just from a digital and social media standpoint I mean from a content deep content awareness and I've learned that firsthand at IBM as we're recruiting people, as we're developing our own team. We are spending more time than ever on skills development at IBM. And it's a fantastic existing team. I brought in a handful of other people to augment it. But the, the existing team is absolutely strong. But one of the things we tell our clients is that the half-life of skills today is about three years. So that means you have to constantly reskill, and it is becoming a far more technical world. And then from a tool standpoint, you mentioned Cision. We work with Cision. Uh, we work with Cision on this data and analytics platform that we put together, including a couple other partners, and we are pushing all the time. And it doesn't surprise me that companies like Cision and others are having to continually augment their tools because the speed at which this is changing is just, it's exponential and it's in warp speed. So, and I know, you know, you talk to the Cision folks and Kevin and team, and they will tell you rightly, oh, the IBM team is pushing us mightily, but we're all growing as a result. Yeah, um, and as someone who's looking to get into PR, you can't just come through the arts route anymore. You've got to have some technical skills, haven't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Frank, Blue Focus, a very well-known Chinese agency that has uh, um, agency subsidiaries in the U.S. They've they've done an interesting spin-off. Tell us all about yeah, that. Yeah, they've uh, sort of spun out a bunch of their agencies into a new company called Blue Impact that is uh, going to be run by a number of former Procter & Gamble uh, executives, including Edwin Rigaud. And um, the firms they've spun out, uh, firms or networks, we should say, are Vision 7, Citizen Relations, Cosat, companies like that. Yeah, um, some well-known PR firms. They also had uh, We Are Social, um, social media firm. Now, Blue Focus still owns 44% of that new spun-off entity, doesn't it? That's so it's still the biggest shareholder. Um, any ideas why they've done it? I mean, is this related to China, trade wars with China, or is it a... They didn't give any indication that it's related to policy or the trade wars or anything anything like that. It is interesting there's a bunch of P&G people involved because they do work very heavily with P&G in, in Asia, for sure. And, um, yeah, so we'll be interested to see how that strategy affects the overall business. And, and the leaders there are Holly Zheng, who 
used to run um, Blue Focus International, mm -hmm. and the guy who's at Vision 7, whose name is escaping me. And it's escaping me too oh, okay. right now, so uh, apologies And he's a good that. guy, and he's been on a PR Week <laughs> roundtable, so apologies, but um, he's based in Canada, and um, he it's himself and Holly who will be running that moving forward. All right, let's finish with... Um, uh, Lord Bell, Tim Bell, very well known PR person in the UK, started in advertising and um, was responsible really for the rise of Margaret Thatcher as a politician in shaping her image and changing her image and making it more customer friendly, or some might argue that that, that, that was an anathema, that statement, but uh, he certainly was very involved in that. and. Uh, Famous, one of the most famous ads of all time is Labour isn't working at the uh, end of the 70s. The Labour Party is the sort of democratic party of the UK. And it was, uh, and you'll see that theme used again and again, actually, uh, sometimes quite egregiously. But it, it, he started as Saatchi's ad man and then, and it was a rare guy who, who went into PR after that and, uh, an iconic figure, a controversial figure as well, for sure. And um, there's a great uh, Danny Rogers, PR Week UK editor, has written a great appreciation of Tim Bell. But uh, what's what's your take on it, Frank? Well, I I'm, I never met him uh, personally. I mean, I I guess my question about it is, do you think it's fair to refer to him as uh, Thatcher's PR man? I mean, because that seems to be how most people are referencing him. Yes, it is. Yeah. Although that was, he obviously had some history after that, culminating in uh, Bell Pottinger, right. named after him. And uh, clearly that wasn't quite so uh, successful. And in fact, we didn't cast the industry in a great light. He was, uh, you know, how far he was involved in that jury still out a little bit, although he, mm -hmm. he was instrumental in getting that South African client. There was a, a big controversy about that which ultimately led to the downfall of the agency and uh, he did a couple of interviews on national tv that Danny references in, in his piece which didn't were, were not great watching and he was uh, sort of bragging about uh, the the dark arts aspect of it yeah but he also I don't think he was in great health either he was mm -hmm. you know he's clearly been um, unwell for a while so um, but what a lot of people say uh, in the appreciations is how he was actually a genuinely quite an a kind guy yeah. when you knew him on a personal basis he was always helpful he was a mentor to a lot of people and he certainly had a big impact on a lot of careers so yeah a lot of controversy around it but he was he came up with some amazing ideas and that labor isn't working is what three words yeah. pretty much won the Tories the election you know and just showed the the power of a message like that really a simple message but that uh, changed the course of history. Actually. I, I think we all need role models like that. We all need to learn from role models like that. And I think his career also spans two spectrums of something else I, I talk about when I go on campus. And I have a passion that we in comms, we bring reputation to the table. That's what we nurture. That's what we grow. And I always, in my analytical mind, I think there's three components to reputation. It's performance, behavior, and how well you communicate those two. And in his early days, working with Thatcher, he had all those, all three of those right in check. And that's why reputation, his reputation improved, as did the prime minister's. And then in his latter days with the agency, those did, kind of fell out of check. And we had a reputation problem. So I think there's a great learning in there that we can take away for what we do from a reputation standpoint. Yeah, I think part of his controversy was where his theory that pretty much everyone deserves representation, 
which is not a, a theory that everyone agrees with. Um, you know, Richard Edelman does it, for example, mm. leader of the biggest PR mm. firm in the world. So he did work for people like Pinochet in Chile, which, uh, you know, that, that's a controversial client to take on. We cover this subject a lot in the podcast about what work you take on and your ethics and your underlying principles. And that was kind of Tim Bell's uh, philosophy. And that um, all goes to reputation. Reput yeah, our own he, reputation and those of the agencies and yeah. the companies we work for. But he certainly um, was an influential figure. And he, he spanned that the worlds of advertising and public relations and, uh, you know, had a, a very storied career, no doubt about that. So, yeah, it's well worth reading Danny's piece for sure. Listen, Ray, it's been great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure. Um, we're looking forward to... Uh, seeing you, uh, how you develop the team, how you develop the playbook at, at IBM. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. Thank so, you, Steve. Uh, thanks Thank you, that. Frank. And um, you don't end on the same exuberant note that you started well, us off. Well, you know. I'm expecting you to top the opening. Well, I'm going to top it, Ray, by talking about PR Decoded, Purpose <laughs> Principles, PR Week's headline stellar conference in Chicago. It's a two-day event. It's going to be amazing. We really have got a great lineup. We're doing the first Purpose Awards um, on the first evening. We've got the CEO of Danone, the biggest B Corps in the world. We've got uh, representatives from Nike who wrote the playbook on purpose. We've got uh, Kelly McGuinness from Levi's and uh, Jen Say, the CMO there. We've got the CMO of Mondelez and Russ Dyer, the CCO. We've got just a fantastic lineup. We've got Josh Ernest at United Airlines and many, many other great companies, great communicators, great marketers great chief information officers and great chief executive officers. So we're bringing together the whole gamut. It's That's what communications is all about now. It's not just chatting amongst ourselves. So it's going to be brilliant. That's on the 16th and 17th. Get your tickets soon before we sell out. Um, and the week after is the uh, one of my favorite events of the year. It's our 40 under 40 dinner where uh, we, we celebrate the young talent in the industry. And that's exceptional talent and uh, it's we've got a great group this year that's on the 24th if you want to uh, big up your place as the best place to work you have got literally the rest of today to register um, you've got until the 9th of September to complete the process but if you want to be in our best places to work um, program this year you need to get registered so best places to work at prweek.com or reach out to Gideon Fiddlesite who will give you all the information and finally the PR Week Awards the Oscars of the PR industry big finish here Ray um, the first deadline for that is the 30th of October and uh, we all know what a great occasion that is in March. It was fantastic this year. We've got a lot to uh, to beat next year, but we're going to try and do it, folks. And, uh, yeah, but that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.